Beijing releases a major policy document on Taiwan, the first of its kind in two decades. We look at the key takeaways. China wraps up its live military drills surrounding Taiwan, but officials say it's not the end of Chinese action there. The U.S. and Canada are sending warships to sail through the Taiwan Strait. They say it's set to help counter Beijing's aggression. One of the world's biggest automakers is slimming its presence in the Chinese market. Company leadership says the decision is based more on politics than finances. And does serving as a foreign ambassador to China pose dangers? This week, a diplomat to the nation passed away, the fourth since 2021. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. China just released its first major policy document on Taiwan in two decades. The move comes the same day Beijing ended its live military drill around the island. So what are the key takeaways? The document says even though Beijing will try its best to achieve what it calls peaceful reunification, it will not renounce the use of force. Reunification is how Beijing describes its efforts to take Taiwan. It sees the island as its rightfully Chinese territory, though the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled Taiwan. The regime's document also took aim at Taiwan's ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party. It says authorities in that party are undermining the prospects of peaceful reunification, adding that these are obstacles that must be removed. In previous white papers, Beijing said it would not send troops or administrative staff into Taiwan after taking it over. That line was left out of the latest document. In response, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen said Beijing's purpose is to threaten Taiwan. She also pointed out that the regime is trying to appeal to some Taiwanese politicians that are inclined to compromise with Beijing. What's more, Tsai criticized the opposition party. The same day China ended its military drill, the vice chair of the opposition party led a delegation to visit mainland China. China has ended its live military exercises around Taiwan, but that's not the end of it. The Chinese military says it plans to regularly organize patrols in the direction of the Taiwan Strait. The strait separates Taiwan from mainland China. But during the drill, China's military crossed the strait and encircled Taiwan. Warships from both sides sailed at close quarters, close enough that Taiwanese warships could reportedly see the Chinese vessels from their windows. China started the military exercise last week after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island. Even though Taiwan is over 7,000 miles away from the U.S., Beijing said Taiwan is the most sensitive and most critical issue in its relations with Washington. The U.S. acknowledges but does not endorse China's claim on the island. Washington does not have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but is bound by law to provide the island with the means to defend itself. The U.S. is promising to sail warships through the Taiwan Strait and send jets flying into the region, while Canada says it's joining in. The movements come in response to Chinese military activities in the region. Washington says Beijing's growing military pressure on Taiwan has become a prolonged strategy. Both the U.S. and Taiwan now believe that Beijing is using U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to trigger conflict and that it intends to step up its threats toward Taiwan. 
Officials said the U.S. Navy will sail through the Taiwan Strait within a few weeks, despite Beijing's recent claim of control over the entire waterway. What's more, Canada is joining the U.S. action. Sailing together with the U.S. Navy will be two Canadian warships, Her Majesty's Canadian ship Vancouver and Winnipeg. The vessels headed west toward the Asia-Pacific region after they wrapped up the U.S.-led Rim of the Pacific exercise last week. Canada's foreign affairs minister called on Beijing to use restraint. He said his country's government was very preoccupied by the threatening action that China is taking and their economic coercion. If your stomach is rumbling, stay tuned. Next, we have an update on food and what a lineup of restaurants in Taiwan has to do with geopolitical tensions and a tweet from China's foreign ministry. Let's take a closer look. Hua Chunying is a spokesperson and the assistant of China's Minister of Foreign Affairs. A recent Twitter post she shared is taking fire, and it has to do with tensions between Taiwan and Beijing. So here's the message. Baidu Maps, considered the Chinese version of Google Maps, showed that there are 38 Shandong Dumpling restaurants and 67 Shanxi Noodle restaurants in Taipei. That's Taiwan's capital city. Worth noting, China's Shandong and Shanxi provinces are famous for their dumplings and noodles. The tweet goes on to say, Palates don't cheat. Taiwan has always been a part of China. The long-lost child will eventually return home. Hua posted the tweet at a sensitive timing. That's amid the tension surrounding the Taiwan Strait, when Beijing is angered by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Her tweet sparked a flurry of mocking comments, with a long list of users using the post's own logic against it. Former U.S. State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortegas also joined in. She quoted Hua's tweet and wrote her own version. Her take reads, There are over 8,500 KFC restaurants in China. Palettes don't cheat. China has always been a part of Kentucky. The long-lost child will eventually return home. But that's not all. Bonnie Glasser is the director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund, a U.S. think tank. She replied to Hua's tweet as well. She wrote that the post shows how desperate Beijing is to identify something that Taiwan and China have in common, adding that economic interdependence hasn't promoted political integration and cuisine won't either. A new joint drill between the U.S. and Japan. The two nations launched the event during the world's largest maritime warfare exercise, known as the Rim of the Pacific Exercise, or RIMPAC. The new action revolves around what's called the existing crisis situation. Japan's defense minister confirmed the exercise on Monday. Existential crisis situation is a term used to describe a certain risk level. The phrase was first identified in Japanese legislation in 2015. The status is the country's second most serious, falling behind what's called an armed attack situation. That describes a situation that warrants Japan to use limited self-defense capabilities. Because Beijing held military drills surrounding Taiwan last week and test-launched five missiles in the area, many believe the timing of the new U.S.-Japan drill was chosen carefully. According to the commander of the U.S. Navy's Third Fleet, the existing crisis drill will boost response from all militaries involved, including Taiwan's. Japan's self-defense force has sent its largest ships, plus its western front of the ground force, to participate in RIMPAC, where they focus on the existing crisis situation drill. 
The event is a biannual drill led by the U.S. It took place this year from late June to early August. 26 countries participated. The Japanese minister didn't disclose details of the exercises, but said Japan will continue participating in similar trainings for peacekeeping purposes. One of the globe's largest automakers is scaling back its presence in China. The company's CEO recently outlined why. NTD's Sean Marshall brings us the details. Stellantis is having trouble with local Chinese politicians. Chief Executive Officer Carlos Tavares cited that as a root cause behind the company's decision to shut down its only Jeep factory in China. He said the state-owned GEC, or Gangzhou Automobile Group, did not comply with a memorandum of understanding leading to a breach of trust. The political influence on business in China has been growing over the last five years, which means the more I discuss with my business partners, the more I was seeing over the last five years that the political pressure, the political influence on their own positions was impactful. Tavares has acknowledged lockdowns in China have impacted business and that the Jeep joint venture was racking up losses. But he said the company's reasons for leaving run deeper. And I think that you will see that some of our competitors being very vulnerable to the Chinese operations will be somewhere challenged in the near future because of this growing geopolitical tensions. Tavares mentioned that they would be very exposed if they kept an asset-heavy strategy and thinks that having an asset-light strategy would give the company more protection. Jeep will instead sell electric vehicles in China. Sean Marshall, NTD News. The U.S. solar industry is trying to navigate the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. The law took effect in June. It bars companies from importing goods from Xinjiang, where there is evidence of forced labor. But vital solar panel materials come from that region. NDD's Colin Fredrickson has more. America's solar industry is being impacted by the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which took effect early June. The act requires companies to prove that imported goods weren't made by Uyghur forced labor in the Xinjiang region. I have family members who, you know, have been interned in these concentration camps who have been used as forced labor. And of course, we hear this from everyone in our community. Salih Hudaya is the prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile. East Turkestan is the name Uyghurs use for their home. The Chinese Communist Party calls it Xinjiang. Udaya is a Uyghur currently living in the United States. He supports the measure, which President Biden signed into law last December. They're not just doing this forced labor uh, project in East Turkestan. They're doing it all throughout China. They're not just using Uyghurs. They're using, you know, Falun Gong. They're using any political dissenters. Uh, you know, including Catholics. Polysilicon is a vital component in solar panels. One estimate says China produces over 80% of the world's solar-grade polysilicon. Another says 50% comes straight from the Xinjiang region. The Wall Street Journal says many Chinese solar panel suppliers have had their shipments detained, according to industry executives. If it's coming from that region, then U.S. Customs and Border Protection will assume that it's a forced labor good. So it will not be able to come into the country. The way around that is if a company can show, uh, provide documentation that its products are not made with forced labor anywhere in the supply chain. Nick Icavella is with the Coalition for a Prosperous America. Icavella says this is a win for American workers because they shouldn't be competing with forced labor. Colin Fredrickson, 
NTD News. Being a foreign ambassador is considered a prestigious job, but acting as ambassador to China could be something to think twice about. Four ambassadors to China have died since 2021. The latest death was Myanmar's ambassador, who died suddenly on Sunday. Diplomats in Beijing and Myanmar state media report that the cause was likely a heart attack, the same as Ukraine's former ambassador to China, who died in February 2021. His passing came during or shortly after a visit to a Beijing Winter Olympics venue. German ambassador Jan Hecker died in September, less than two weeks into his Beijing posting. His cause of death was kept private. While the Philippines ambassador Jose Santiago Romana died while under quarantine in eastern China in April. Coming up, the U.S. is taking aim at the Chinese Communist Party's infiltration in Africa. It's zeroing in on military bases, trade activities and more. Plus, the U.S. Microchips and Science Act gets signed into law. We spoke with two experts for more on the pros and cons. Find out more in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. U.S. Africa Command now has a new commander. The incoming Chief Marine Corps Admiral Michael Langley succeeds Stephen Townsend. That's as he steps up to lead the U.S. military on the African continent. The Pentagon says countering Chinese influence there remains a top priority. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke as the command was turned over to Langley. Austin said the command has embraced its mission working shoulder-to-shoulder with partners to make all nations safer and more prosperous. At the same time, Austin warned about threats coming from China and touched on Beijing's infiltration attempts in Africa. He said China is expanding its military footprint, seeking to build bases in Africa and undermine U.S. relations with African countries, peoples and militaries. Austin noted that Africa deserves the protection of international rules and norms and said that gives the nations of Africa a clear-eyed choice of partners. Military jet flyovers, fireworks and Chinese construction. On what was called a historic day, Croatia opened a 1.5-mile-long bridge at the end of July, connecting the southernmost parts of Croatia with the country's mainland. The project in the Balkan nation has raised concerns over China's bid to boost its economic influence in Europe. We've got more from NDD's Eddie Akin. Croatia on Tuesday opened a long-awaited bridge connecting two parts of the country's Adriatic Sea coastline while bypassing a small sliver of Bosnian territory. The opening ceremony included a flyover by military jets, performances, speeches and fireworks. The first car to cross the bridge was a Croatian-made all-electric sports car. Prime Minister Andrei Plenković described the day as historic for the country. The bridge was largely funded by the European Union, but entirely built by a Chinese company with Chinese workers, amid concerns in Europe over China's bid to boost its economic influence through investment and infrastructure. The Chinese state-run company that won the contract bid far less than its nearest competitor. An Austrian construction company filed a complaint over what it called price dumping, arguing the Chinese company was receiving state aid. 
Chinese Premier Li Keqiang said in a video message the bridge illustrates friendly relations between his country and Croatia. The 1.5-mile bridge links Croatia's mainland to the Pelješac Peninsula in the south, allowing easier access to the country's most important tourism destination. Hedy Itkin, NTD News. President Joe Biden signed the Chips and Science Act into law on Tuesday. The $280 billion bill aims to support the domestic semiconductor industry and help it compete with other countries in attracting investment. The rule will also give $52 billion to U.S. chip manufacturers. The rest will go toward tax breaks for major tech corporations, green energy initiatives and research grants for the administration's various projects. Supporters of the bill say it'll help the U.S. compete with China, since Beijing is heavily subsidizing its own chip industry. But critics have labeled the law as a corporate handout that will increase inflation and hurt U.S. taxpayers. To find out more, NTD's Don Ma spoke with two experts, Vance Jin from the Texas Public Policy Foundation and Stephen Ezel from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Here's what they had to say. Vance, Stephen, pleasure having you both here. So the CHIP Act is now law. Biden signed it earlier. So Stephen, I want to go to you first. Tell us how exactly does this bill intend to strengthen domestic semiconductor production and help the U.S. compete with China? Well, in total, the bill provides $76 billion to support America's semiconductor industry. That includes $24 billion worth of tax credits to invest in semiconductor manufacturing plants. It includes another $39 billion in incentives or matching grants to uh, match states' investments. And it includes $13 billion to support R&D and innovation into next-generation semiconductor manufacturing product and process innovation. So Vance, on that point, Stephen mentioned, I want you to react to them, but same question to you. Does the bill strengthen U.S. semiconductor production and help compete with China? Well, I think what you see here with this overall bill, which is about $200 billion in total, is is a lot of spending um, and a lot of subsidies for the semiconductor industry. Um, and one of the concerns that I have is that, you know, what this could do is push more. There's no restrictions on saying that this semiconductor industries have to produce more here in the United States. Um, what I would like to see them do instead is to lower the cost of doing business. One, one issue we have right now is that we have too high of taxes and too high of regulations. They're imposing more government at a time whenever we need less government, less regulation, less taxes. And so I would have rather seen them instead of throwing a lot more money to certain industries is instead reduce the cost of doing business overall because we have too high of taxes and regulations it's one of the reasons why a lot of the semiconductor industry has moved to places like Taiwan like to China to get the lower cost of production so we are more reliant on those other countries which is a problem in it itself but instead of creating an issue where you subsidize something and, and, and you know move money around within the economy instead we should be reducing the cost the burden the cost of doing business here at home by lowering maybe the corporate income tax more instead of putting a minimum tax in place like the inflation reduction act does or cutting regulations by the Biden administration like we were doing during the Trump administration and instead of putting more of a toll on the back of taxpayers, increasing debt and increasing inflation, which is ultimately going to be the result of a lot of the, the, the parts that are in this bill. All right. Stephen, I definitely want your thoughts on what Vance said, but maybe you can also touch on this point of concern as well. Does the bill lack safeguards making sure China or companies with links to the CCP don't benefit? 
so it's important to recognize that the bill does include those types of safeguards. Uh, the final text is passed stipulates that money can only be used for U.S. projects, and the Secretary of Commerce must confirm that all supported efforts meet a national interest standard. Today, virtually 100% of the world's most advanced semiconductors, those operating at the sub-7 nanometer level, are manufactured elsewhere in the world. It is imperative for our industry and our national security that the world's most sophisticated chips, more of them, be manufactured here in the United States. Certainly, as we have seen issues with Taiwan and China flaring up in recent weeks, it focuses the mind that we need to have some domestic resilient capacity to manufacture these leading edge semiconductors here. And you think subsidizing com uh, American companies is the way to do it? We need to be very clear when we use the word subsidy. Let's look at China. China, as part of its $170 billion national integrated circuit strategy, invested $25 billion to stand up from whole cloth to bring into existence a Chinese memory semiconductor competitor called YMTC, Yangtze Memory Technologies. This is with $25 billion of government investment to create a new company that would not otherwise exist in the global economy because it's not economically viable. That's a subsidy. What we're doing here is a maximum of $3 billion per site for a grant to offset the investment incentives that other countries provide to attract semiconductor manufacturers. Recently, South Carolina invested $2 billion to attract BMW's auto manufacturing to their state. We're talking incentives, not subsidies. And it's important to recognize the difference for U.S. policymakers. Vance, what's your reaction? Well, I think we can redefine things different ways, but incentives are the same things as subsidies. I mean, it's coming out of the taxpayer's pocket of how you're going to allocate resources compared to profit and loss in the productive private sector. And so I would rather see the dollars be more productively done within the private sector based on profit and loss compared to the government directing resources to specific businesses, which is what China does, which we should not be doing here in America in a republic that we have a form of capitalism. Um, I, I agree um, that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. I just disagree with the process and the and the um, the overall outcome of what we should be doing as a government. I'd rather this be doing through the productive private sector versus government directing resources. Now, you, you mentioned China subsidizing companies. It works sometimes, right? Why shouldn't the U.S. do it? Well, I, I mean, it, it works maybe for a short period of time, uh, but it, you can prop up things for so, just so long. I think we've seen the Solyndras of the world here. It's a little bit different, of course, because that's in kind of solar energy, because ultimately this has to be paid for. There's, there's no free lunch. There's no free incentives. There are no free subsidies. And so this will come in the form of higher taxes, um, higher debt and higher inflation. All right. Stephen, your thoughts, last words? I certainly agree with Vance that it is imperative that the United States offer the most attractive environment for private enterprise investment in the world. Now, that said, I do think that we are in a global competition. So when other countries are offering incentives that defray as much as 40 to 70 percent the cost of building a semiconductor fab, the United States simply has to be in that game or private enterprises are going to invest elsewhere in the world. That's why we view this not as subsidies, but as incentives to attract globally mobile investment that could be put elsewhere, anywhere else in the world. I see. All right. Thank you both. Vance Ginn, Texas Public Policy Foundation, Stephen Azell, Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Thank you both again very much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Thanks for watching. But before you go, here's a short glimpse into this Thursday's special report. Rising prices, falling currencies, the effects of inflation are hitting hard. But in this age of globalization, what role is the Chinese regime playing in U.S. inflation? And how is the Middle East involved? In this special report, we look at how players in different countries move across the global chessboard and how actions thousands of miles away are felt here at home. Presenting the heritage of traditional Chinese martial arts, promoting martial ethics and reviving the true tradition. The 2022 NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition Preliminaries will be held in New York and Taiwan. On August 28th, the finals will be broadcast live online worldwide. Registration hotline 188-477-9228. For more information, please visit martialarts.ntdtv.com.